want to show you this this morning in Luke chapter 20. So we you open your Bibles to Luke 20, I'm going to leave this picture right here for a moment. Because I want to explain what this has to do with the word tax in Luke 20. Remember, the, the question was, do we pay the tax to Caesar or not? Remember that question? Luke 20, I think it's actually in verse 22. But the, the, the context there is they were trying to corner Jesus. And they, had, they wanted him to choose sides. Do we give our money to, to Caesar or do we give it to God? Now, when they ask him that question, don't think 1040, you know, uh, 1099. Don't think those terms. Think about this picture because the tax they're talking about there is really was more of an extra tax. It's what they, it literally it translates a poll tax. It would be the kind of tax that, that you would get to help with extra things. Like in this case, you find these all over I-80 between Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, Pennsylvania. And apparently they're used to keep the roads better. Uh, and that's in addition to what we give normally in our taxes to help with the roads, right? And so this is really what he's talking about in Luke 20. They were asking about a poll tax. You see, this tax that they're talking about in Luke 20 was something that, that the Jewish citizens gave directly to the Roman government. In addition to what they gave initially, perhaps for supporting that occupation and, and the government there being on their land, this is something extra that they would actually give directly. They'd, they'd give money and it'd be more than what they initially gave. And, and it was a very probably hard thing to say, man, I've already given once and now i got to give again to these people who... I'm not even sure I like. So that's the gist. That's kind of the tension behind this passage. So this was a ripe area to try to squeeze the Lord in. And say, hey, let's get him to choose. Because remember, as a Jew, who would you expect him to side with? The Jews. But as a, as a, as a dweller in that land, under that Roman government... Who would you expect him to side with? Those are good questions. So they thought, we'll get him to choose. And if he chooses the Romans, then the Jews will revolt on him. They'll say, well, you're not one of us. If he chooses the Jews, the Romans can come in and say, hey, you can't incite rebellion and disobedience. We got him. We'll get him this way. Look at what the Bible says, Luke 20. Let's begin reading in verse 20. This kind of explains what I just told you about. The Bible says that they kept a close watch on him. And so they sent spies, and the word they refers back to verse 19, the teachers of the law and the chief priests. These were those Jewish, I don't want to use the word comrades, but those were those, those, were those Jewish religious leaders who really didn't like the Lord. Of the same race, but they saw him as a threat. Remember last week? Not as the truth. So they sent these spies to hope to catch him in what he said, and they might hand him over then to the power and the authority of the governor. But when the spies, So the spies questioned him in verse 21. And they said, teacher, we know. And by the way, can you underline the word no? And out beside the word no, this will be something I'll do in your Bible. This will be fun for you. Write the word really and then put a question mark by it. Because don't you think it's odd that they actually acted like they knew something when back in verse 20 it says they were pretending to be something. Isn't that funny? It's like they came to the Lord and they said, Lord, now we know. And then they look around to their friends. Don't we, guys? Act like we know this, you know. I mean, they're, they're faking it. They're playing a game. They don't believe or know any of this, but they're trying to catch our Lord. So he said, Lord, we know that you speak and teach what is right. You can see the eyes shifting, can't you? Don't we, guys? We, we say it's right, at least right here, don't we? And that you do not show partiality, but that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. So we've got a question for you, Jesus. Is it right for us to pay 
taxes or to give this poll tax to give even more than we already give to Caesar or not. Okay, Jesus, who are you going to side with? The Jews or the Romans? Look what he says in verse 23. He saw through their duplicity. When Christ goes to answer a question, by the way, he always looks at the heart first. Isn't that neat? This is one of many times in Luke this happens. That he saw through people's intentions in there. And he says, show me a denarius. Now, a denarius is about the size of a dime. And it was worth about a day's wage. So, imagine whatever you make in a normal day, being wrapped up in a coin this size. He asked them to produce one. And they did. Now, in that one action, don't lose me here, okay? In that one action, I think there was a strong message. Because... These were Jewish spies sent by Jewish leaders. And what did they produce? They produced a Roman coin, which said one thing. Watch me here. You don't want to admit that you're under Caesar, and you don't like paying taxes, but whose money do you have in your pocket? Caesar's. And I think the implication is this. Hey, guys, you, you can say all day long how you don't like it. The truth is, you're living in this world. You are living under this Roman government. You, you want me to side against it? You want me to say that you don't like it and I don't like it. But the truth is, when I ask you for Daenerys, you had one. You actually are participating and involved in this very culture that you're trying to get me to, to stand against. They brought it out just like that. Now, by the way, there were Greek and Jewish denominations in circulation. Now, engage with me here. Remember the last chapter? The money exchangers in the temple? Why were those necessary? Because folks were bringing all different kinds of money to that town and they needed to get the right kind of money. So don't, don't make a mistake. There were other monies around. But what did the Jewish people have readily available? Roman denariuses. I think it was a stinging way to say, hey guys, you want me to, to, to tell you that you don't have to be part of this. But the truth is, you carry their money and you use their money. You're in this culture. Admit it. He says, whose inscription is on? Look at the Bible. And they said Caesar's. And by the way, if you want to read that the way it may be in the original languages, it should be like this. Caesar's. Now that, that's probably not something I can prove in the Greek text, but from my creative spiritual imagination, I imagine that's how they said it. That's how I say it. About April 13th, the kids say, Dad, what are you doing? Taxes. You know, We drive to Jewish parents. So they, they live in Michigan. Toll booth number one. Why are we stopping? I gotta pay a poll tax. See, if you read that, you'd be like, I just said I pay a poll tax. But when you hear me say it, you're like, Dad, what's the deal? Another 50 cents, another four dollars to keep the roads better. And so this, this thing is interesting here. There's bound to be some of our own kind of tension in this. So they replied, Caesar's. That's whose portrait inscription on it. And then he makes an amazing statement. He said, then give to Caesar's what is Caesar's. It's like he said this. Well, if his picture had been stamped on it, I guess you owe it to him. And I say the word owe on purpose because the word there forgive is not the word for gift. If I came to Joel and said, Joel, I'm going to give you a quarter. He'd first of all say, man, you are generous, you know. But then he would assume that I'm just giving him a quarter. But if I said, Joe, Joel, I'm, I'm going to pay you back a quarter, then you would assume what? That Joel at some point gave me a quarter. The word here is render. That's the best translation and that's used in the King James. And it means you pay back what you owe. And I want to say something to you. 
You can all gasp if you want. But there is a biblical admonition to pay the government what we owe them. Its functions are supported by its citizens. And there is a legitimate biblical command that we are to give part of our money back to the government to keep it going. Do they charge you too much? That'd be up for debate. Are there lots of those things going on? That'd be up for debate. But I think the Bible here teaches very clearly that, you know what? You need to give Caesars what is Caesars. By the way, write this reference down. Romans 13, verse 6. This is a verse that explains exactly what we're talking about here. It says that that as Christians, we should obey our authorities and pay taxes. I mean, it couldn't be more clear than Romans 13, 6. In fact, all of Romans 13 teaches something very clear. Listen very carefully to me. That the powers that be, and they're going to struggle with this because I can't explain it. But the power, the earthly powers that be, the Bible says they're ordained by God. I'll be the first to say to you, I don't understand that. I vote a certain way. If things don't go that way, I'm thinking, well, how can that be of the Lord? You know, like God and I got some secret conspiracy going on, right? But God is so awesomely sovereign that He says in Psalms and Proverbs that He sets up kings and He takes down princesses, that He actually oversees the affairs of men. How does He do that when administrations and, and regimes seem contrary to the Word? I don't know. You've stumped your pastor. But I, I tie a knot in that portion of Scripture and hang on to this fact. God is in control in spite of who's called president, king, emperor, or prince. Amen? Can I explain it? Not on your life. You can try somewhere else, but I believe it. And so for that reason, I, I obey the authorities. We, we do what's right because that's our government. And the Bible gives us clear admonition throughout Romans 13 and here in Luke chapter 20 to pay back, to give what we owe. Can I ask you to write down one other thing? Would you write down this website? Thetruthproject.org Just jot that down. I really want to encourage you to go to that website. Thetruthproject.org is an awesome website that will help you understand the balance between uh, the church and the family and the government. It will put a lot of this in perspective for you. I hope one day we can teach a class here on the Truth Project and bring in some of these concepts and help help us understand what is our biblical uh, role and responsibility. This morning, suffice it to say this, this passage, as well as Romans 13, teaches very clearly it is our responsibility to give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But he doesn't leave the conversation there. He takes it from a political one to a spiritual one. Look what he says next. I love the last half of this phrase. And then give to God what is God's. And that's an, that's an odd answer. Because they didn't really ask about spiritual taxes, did they? And they wanted to know, who do we, do we pay taxes to Caesar? And so he should have said, yes. But he makes this dual answer. Give to Caesar what is Caesar, and then to God's what is God's. And what he did in this, was he did this, watch guys. He avoided being trapped to an either-or answer. That's what they wanted, wasn't it? Romans... Or Jews. Which one, Jesus? And he said, listen, this is not about Romans Jews. It's about your role as a citizen on this earth and your role as a citizen in God's kingdom. Now, I draw from this a simple principle. Watch this. 
You can live in this world while you belong to another one. See, he, he made it both and. He didn't make it either or. So I want you to write down somewhere on your teaching tool or out by your, out by your, your notes here, a very simple principle from Christ to answer to these spies. He said, listen, I won't be cornered and I won't be trapped. Guess what? You can live in this world, i.e. you can pay your taxes, do what you're supposed to do and obey the government, and still give to God what is God's. Now, when you think about that answer, you think, okay, well, if money has the image of the, of the, of, of the ruler on it, in our case, different presidents and so forth, and that's what we're to give back then to the government, what do you give to God? I mean, what has God's image stamped on it? You and me. Matthew 1, excuse me, Genesis 1 says that we were made in the image of God. Genesis 1.28. Now listen very carefully, church. I believe this came out in this conversation. Now Christ, according to the biblical record, never said Genesis 1.28. I realize that. But I think the law teachers and the spies and the chief priests were well aware of the Old Testament. And when he made this incredible answer, yeah, give your money to Caesar, that's whose image is on it. But hey guys, give your life to God. I think the automatic implication was, wow, because my life has God's image stamped on it. You see, the government can have your money, but don't give the government your life. That only belongs to God. You see the higher calling here? And Jesus Christ is not asking for you perhaps necessarily choose. I realize that at times we have to obey God's authority above man's. That does happen sometimes. But let's just be extremely frank. Most of the time in Ankeny, Iowa, that's not going to happen. You're not going to be forced to choose between the two. So accept this admonition that you can live in this world and belong to another. You can give your taxes to Caesar and you can give your life to God. They don't have to conflict. Now watch this. That concept, that principle, that teaching that Christ brought where He refused to be trapped and said, guys, you can live in this world and belong to that one. Watch this. Don't miss this. Listen very carefully. May God's Spirit just impress this upon us. That's the heart. That is the heart of outreach. You're thinking, Todd, I don't know how we're going to talk about outreach and witnessing and and being community-minded when you're talking about taxes. No, you are missing the, the point. Having a heart that says, I can live in this world, though I belong to that one, is the very heart of being an ambassador for God. Is that not what we're called to do? To be in the world, but what? Not of it? Write the scripture down. John chapter 15. Excuse me, John 17. John 17. Jesus Christ clearly um, re- just affirmed this very same principle when He prayed for His disciples. John 17. Let me show you what the Word says here. And just jot the reference down. John 17, verse 15. The Bible says that Christ prayed this, not just for those disciples, but for us who are still to follow. He prayed this. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world. Did you catch that? Joe, Christ never prayed that once you got saved, he, that you could be extracted from all these problems and all these ungodly people. He never prayed that for you. What did He pray for people who became a believer and were living in a world that does not believe? But that you would protect them from the evil one. This is the heart of outreach. This is where most churches miss it, but this is where the heart of first family must align 
with the heart of God and the heart of Scripture. Listen very carefully. You want to see the heart of your pastor come through here. I just want you to, to let God's Word sink in. We are in this world. You are in this world. I mean, you're sitting here breathing. You will drive a car home. You will go to your home which you have bought. And you probably pay a bank and you'll pay taxes. And you'll eat food you bought at a grocery store. That store probably sells beer and other things that you don't approve of. They are owned by people who are probably ungodly. We can go on and on. You know what? Guess what? You will not be able to completely remove yourself from the world you live in. I don't want you to. There are people that try that, by the way. They believe in what we call sectarianism. And uh, a man by the name of Mark Driscoll is, a, is just a really super speaker. I've had a chance to Jay, give you some of his tapes. A, a very engaging speaker, and I've listened to several messages this week. He talks about uh, how a lot of churches have become sectarian churches. They are just like totally legalistic, and you can't do anything the culture does. You can't have cable TV. You can't shop somewhere where they sell beer, and you can't go to the movie theaters. And man, they get completely out of the culture. Now, I'm not here to promote or deny any of that. That's kind of, those are probably preference issues. I'm just explaining the situation. They're on this extreme. Then you have other folks, what we call syncretists. I mean, it's their job just to make sure everybody blends in. We've got to synchronize with the culture. You know, they've compromised and they have actually sinned against God. They have abandoned conservative theology. Which is what? That man is a sinful man. That we have this innate problem we cannot fix. And we need a Savior named Jesus Christ. Amen? We just kind of abandon that. We just want to synchronize with the culture and fit into where there's just a blend in and everything's hunky-dory, you know. Can I say both extremes are very unhealthy. What the Bible speaks of is an attitude that we're in the world... And we have opinions and preferences and we should follow those based on God's leading. But we don't abandon the, the theological doctrines that, that got us here. We're in the world, but we're not of it. And I want to say to you, when the church rises up and learns to live in this world, even though we belong to that one, that's when outreach starts happening. But a lot of us are running scared. Which I wonder why we do that when Christ said, I've not given you a spirit of fear. But of power and love and of a sound mind. But man, we run and hide like, oh my, the world's after me and we're taking off. And Hey, let me just share this with you. Earlier in Luke, when he sent the 72 out and he sent the 12 out, and this is a general principle here, but they would have been scared. And what did Christ say? Listen, listen don't worry. If snakes bite you, they won't harm you. If you drink poison, it won't kill you. I'm sending you with the power of the Spirit to carry on the apostolic ministry. Now, that same idea is not going to apply here in the sense of our commissioning because we are not in an apostolic era like that. But watch this. The same principle does. He said to those disciples, I am with you. Don't be scared. I want to say to you, as a prophetic voice for God this morning, Hey, you're in the world. Quit being scared. God is with you. Let us engage our culture and instead of isolating ourselves or accommodating the culture, let us find a way to insulate ourselves with God's Word and then infiltrate our culture. That is the heart of outreach. There's a guy in our church who quit the ministry. That's a strong word, quit. But he left the ministry to go back into the world and get a job. 
You know why? Because he was finding himself more and more removed from the people that Jesus died for. Now, I doubt you'll see a video about his call. <laughs> okay? You're not going to find some story about how he left the church to go back to the workplace. But the truth is, we probably ought to. That's the very heart that is talked about in this passage. You can live in this world. You can work at principle. You can work at the factory. You can sell stocks and bonds. And you can be involved in the grocery store. You can own a bank. You can run a business. And you can be an incredibly sold-out disciple of God. You can run for office. You can be in politics. You can be a doctor. You can fix cars. Are you with me, guys? And when the church realizes that's the essence of outreach, suddenly the church becomes more than something you're invited to. It becomes a collection of people who are imitating Christ. And I want to say something to you. That's when Christianity becomes compelling. You see, I... I like the fact that you guys invite folks to church. I think that's awesome. But when you invite someone that you barely know to church, it's probably not a huge chance they're going to show up. You need to try to get to know them first. I mean, I don't accept any just cold invitations, do we? We just hang up on those kind of people. <laughs> oh, okay, forget it. We hang up, you know. I mean, you've got to establish a relationship. Get to know them. Even then, if you invite them, I think that's great. But I want to say something to you. You bring them to hear me kind of yell and rant and rave and spit on the first row. It's only going to get you so far. What they're looking for is the imitation of Christ in your life, not just the invitation to church. I mean, when Ed Hosey invites a friend, I think that's awesome, Ed. But you know what's even more potent than that is on the fire station, the folks are saying, man, what is with Ed lately? I mean, have you seen Ed? I mean, he like, like prays. I didn't know Ed prayed. And there's talking, they're talking about what's happening to Ed. And then suddenly, let's say, as Ed gets to know them, they begin talking about the change in Ed's life. And Ed may invite him to church, but as his invitation matches up with his imitation, that's when Christianity becomes compelling. And far too many church members are just depending on an invitation, and then they go back to this area, and they just live just like the world. And an average unbeliever, an average non-Christian says to that, I don't want any part of that. Don't yell at me with your lips when your life is no different than mine Monday through Saturday. I don't, I don't, I'll never go back. I don't want that to be the heartbeat of First Family. I want First Family to be a place where we live out the gospel Monday to Monday at the bank, at Quick Trip. We're in line uh, April 15th when we're filling out our forms. <laughs> I mean, hey, let's give the Caesars what Caesars. Let's be involved in our community. Let's be obedient citizens of a God-ordained government. And instead of saying, well, good night, I, I, that just conflicts everything I believe, and I can't, I mean, then let's try to live in this world. I belong to that one. Let's try to be a bridge. Amen? Let's try to be ambassadors. So I say to you again, this simple story about taxes in Luke 20 has everything to do with outreach. It is the heart of God for you to live in this world while you belong to His. Now, I want to share with you a simple verse that will drive this home even further. And I'm going to be wrapping up here, so just hang with me. That means I've got 20 more minutes, so work with me here, okay? Romans 12, 1 and 2. Write this scripture down. Romans 12, 1 and 2. There's two interesting words here. 
Because I've talked to you about the impression that, that Christ should make on us as opposed to the uh, uh, what others should have on us. Let me show you this verse real quick. Romans 12, 1 and 2, okay? Romans 12, 1 and 2. And this is not me behind me, so just kind of hang with me here. Romans 12, 2 talks about how have our lives uh, stamped with God's image. Not necessarily, by, necessarily stomped with another's impression. Did you catch that phrase there? When we are stamped with God's image, when He burns His image on us, we become, what the Bible says in Romans 12, we become transformed. That word is the word, watch me here, metamorphosis. It means to, to become something from the inside out. Like a, a caterpillar to a butterfly. It's an inside job that's cocoonish, so to speak. Are you with me? That's what the word metamorphosis. Something changes here and it shows up on the outside. That's what happens when God stamps His image on you inwardly. But a lot of us give in to pressure and we let others stomp their impression on us. And we externally give in. That's the word conformed in Romans 12. It says, do not be conformed to the world. That's the idea of a mold. You know, you have a, a mold and you pour hot something hot into it and it shapes it. That's the same word. There's a definite difference in these two words. And a lot of us are being, we're letting the world's mold kind of come around us. We feel pressured by it to conform outwardly. That's not the right way to go. We shouldn't let the stomp of another's impression, hey, you better do this and that. Who cares what they think? Let the, let the image of Christ be stamped on us. That's what we're after. Not their stomp, but His stamp. And I think that really goes to the heart of outreach. When you and I begin to live with the, with the calling of God, with His image burned within us, with the likeness of Christ within our souls, that is compelling, attractive outreach. But when it's duct tape spirituality, you know what that is, don't you? When you just kind of attach a lot of good things to your life, when you just conform because the pressure is really great, you become like this silver-lined Christian. There's duct tape and you shine like crazy and no one wants to be a part of you. You've got a good work here, church attendance here, and you've got giving to charity here. And... But open the doors of your home and ask if you're happy. You're like, man, I feel so pressured. Man, I, I'm, about to, I'm, about to, I'm about to crack. Because everything's external and nothing's in here. You've never let God... Stamp His image on you. You just kind of conform to some outward external pattern. Wrong approach to outreach. You see, I believe the best way to do outreach is found in this whole idea in Luke 20 where it talks about the image being stamped on us. If money has the image of, 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 the, of the government on it, so to speak, and your life has God's image stamped on it, then the, the key to outreach is understanding the stamped image concept. Can I share this with you real briefly? Watch this, guys. The stamped image concept says this. Whose I am determines what I do and where I do it. Just write that down, would you? I'll show it behind me. It's called the stamped image concept. And I believe it is the key to outreach. It's the real key to understanding your role in this world and how to live in it. It's called the stamped image concept. I draw it from Luke 20. And it simply says, whose I am determines what I do. I don't belong to the government, so they don't set the agenda. I want to obey and respect. But guess who's? I am God's. Twice, actually. By creation, I have inherent worth and value because I was made in the image of God. And so does every single person. Amen. Teach your kids that, parents. It's not about color. It's not about size. It's not about 
economic status, every single person, if you were to go to our basement and we have a family creed on the wall, you'd find that part of that family creed, something we wrote years ago, says that people, every single person, is of worth and value because they're made in the image of God. That's right. Now watch this. Saddam Hussein was made in the image of God. The problem is most folks never see that their image by creation should ultimately lead to their image by conversion. And we let sin come into our life and keep us away from God. And so we never let Christ restore us to our original relationship. And so we live apart from God forever. But I want to say to you, the Bible is clear. Every single person is made in the image of God. And they're of inherent worth and value. And that's difficult to, to grasp, isn't it? But it's true. So what do we do with that? When we start realizing that we were stamped with God's image once in creation, and then at conversion, God stamps us even with His Son's likeness, that becomes a real heartbeat for outreach. So I want to impress upon you. You must grasp and grapple with the stamped image concept. Is it happening in your life? It should affect three things, and I'll just run through these quickly. It should affect your calling. And by that I mean your conversion experience. Since every person here has been stamped by God at creation, guess whose you really are? You are God's. And until you, conv- uh, until you believe in faith that Jesus Christ is your way back to God, kind of that's what gets you over the, the hell of sin, the bridge of Christ, you will always be separated. But Jesus Christ restores us to God, to the One who made us in the first place. Isn't that awesome? And when we do that, we become God's in a way twice. Folks, I want to say to you, you belong to God and He is calling you home. You hear me? We prayed about it and we sang about it. God is calling you home. You say, what do you mean home, Todd? Because that's where you originally were. Listen, First Family Church. One day it will be like it was in the garden. Man, my heart is so full right now. I mean, God's Spirit is really, uh, really speaking to me. I need you to listen. That's the way it was supposed to be. And then one day it will be that way. But sin has separated. What did the prophet say in Isaiah? Sin is separated between you and your God. God doesn't want you away from Him. He wants you home where you belong. How is that possible? Through His Son, Jesus Christ. And when anyone on the face of the earth cries out and says, God, I believe that through Your Son, Jesus, I can have life in Your name eternally. You are the... The, the only way to heaven, Jesus, when someone cries out in faith and believes that the cross of Christ is the bridge to heaven, they are restored in their relationship to God. They're back home. That's what I mean by calling. And I believe that when people realize you were made by God once, let Him redeem you and be made to Him twice, it just makes a lot of sense. God owns you. He made you. And He's calling you home. Question. To every single person in this room, do you know for sure that you belong to the God who created you? I don't mean by creation. Do you know that you belong to Him through conversion? Has He saved your soul in addition to making your body? Amen? If not, man, there's no better day than today to trust Jesus as your only soul restorer. In a few minutes, we're going to have a time of response here. You may think it's weird and think it's embarrassing, but I don't encourage you. Just make your way here. We'll be praying at the front a little bit. Just say to myself, one of the say, you know, I just want to get to know God through Jesus. I want, my, I want to come back home. 
There's two of the things this affects, and I'll try to be brief here. It affects your character and it affects your, your conduct. Just throw these up there real quickly. When the image of Christ is stamped on you, change starts occurring. And watch this. Where does it happen first? Say it with me. In your character. Your appetites, your attitudes start changing. And then that shows up in your conduct. Let me illustrate what I'm talking about. A few weeks back, my wife and I took our, one of our daughters to a soccer party. She plays soccer at Ankeny, and it's one of the ways we just try to stay involved in our community, and she's a lot of fun. And so uh, we go to this Halloween party for her soccer team. And if you don't like Halloween, just bear with me and forgive me. So we take her to this party. She won the best-dressed costume. Um, so we pick her up. We drop her off. She has a party. We go, we pick her up. And we know these people, but not really, really definitely. We know them. We're friends with them. So we're at the party, and... We walk in, they're just kind of, all the parents are kind of standing around, you know, and they're just watching. There's a mom and a dad and the girls are all in the center having a good time. And So we walk in and Julie stands here. Well, I walk in, take my shoes off, and I walk in and I come behind my wife and I put my hands around her. I embrace her like this. I may have whispered something to her, maybe a kiss from the neck, and we're just kind of, you know, laughing with the group. We're watching, we just kind of stay like this for a little bit. And Well, the evening ends and we go home. Well, the next weekend at some of the games... Some of those women had questions for Julie. Like, uh, so, why does your husband act that way? You know? Now, that may not seem that strange to you. But apparently, that wasn't always the case with some of these people. Our friends, and they, they, they begin to question and ask her, like, so, y'all really get along? And, and they begin to ask further questions. You know what began to open up is God's Spirit began to over that we can just really work through Julie and open many doors for, a, a, for awesome spiritual conversations, is they just had a lot of questions about why do you act the way you act? And why does your husband act the way he acts? You know, we, we and this will probably, probably fire me over this, I don't know. Um, we've never really invited them to church, okay? I'm going to be honest with you. I haven't said, hey, I'm a pastor, and if my daughter's going to play, you better come to my church. We just live, watch this, we just live kind of normally in front of them. We're madly in love with each other. That shows up. And they thought that was kind of odd. You know how that happened? We didn't go to like some breakthrough couple seminar. We didn't read some book on how to fall in love all over again in 24 hours. None of that. We have just over the period of years dived into God's Word and let the image of Christ burn itself upon our consciousness and upon our souls and our life to where... We want Christ to start living out His values through us. Now, we're not perfect at it. Not even we're close. But it does show up in certain ways. One of those is in how we love each other. And then when people see that, they're like, Dude, what's up with that? And they have all these questions. Can I say to you, that's the, that's the illustration of what the, the stamp image concept does. As Christ changes you, and those changes show up, people start asking questions. That's the best outreach of all. And that should be the heart of First Family. That's the heart of this posture. Where you invite people into your life. And yes, they may think you're weird in some ways, but in a lot of ways they think you're kind of normal. And they start wondering, well, I know you go to church and I know you're kind of part of this Christian thing, but yet you, you seem like me in a lot of ways. Well, you know, in a lot of ways I am. I live in this world, but I actually belong to another one. Can I tell you about it? And God opens doors and you share your relationship with Christ with people. 
in the normal context of your life. Folks, that's honest evangelism. That's honest outreach. How does it start? I don't have any cards talking about our Easter program this morning. I don't have any tickets to a Christmas program. I've got an invitation to you to get to know Jesus Christ better than you've ever known Him before. So that He can stamp, he can stamp His Christ-likeness on you. As that happens, people will be attracted, compelled to ask questions. And until that does, your outreach is just going to be kind of programmatic. I've got to close. Will you keep this one story in mind? This will tell you how to, how to begin letting Christ stamp His image on you. I was uh, speaking in Atlanta over the weekend. And while I was in that area, in the Dalton, Georgia, while I was down there, I stopped by to see my 95-year-old grandmother. Godly woman. She's just super. She'll probably live to be like 128. I mean, she's just... She's... Uh, Forgets who I am sometimes, and she struggles when she can't walk, but she's like a, a trooper. She didn't know I was coming, so I went to the nursing home, and I found a room, and I knocked on the door. And she didn't hear me, so I said, Memo. We call her Memo. I said, Memo. And I peeked around the corner, and there she was. This is how she was sitting. And I, I can't imitate this very well, but she's sitting in her wheelchair. I mean, she's literally hunched over. Her back is probably almost like, a, like an L. She's hunched over. Her Bible's in her lap. She's probably this far from her Bible, and she's about this far from the radio. She's reading her Bible. She's listening to a message. And she turns her head slowly to the door. She says, oh, my grandson's here. You know, like that. So I walked in, and in those 30 seconds that I saw her, I was there for a while, but in those first 30 seconds, man, God's conviction just overwhelmed me. I mean, my first thought as I saw her, I thought, now that's how Christ stamps His image on us. I, I've, all weekend I've been thinking, God, hunch me over the Bible and let Your image just burn into my soul. I'm not even 95. I don't have any physical ailments that I know about other than my bald head and my big nose. I mean, I, I mean what have I got to complain about, right? I have a hard time finding time. And yet... Now, my 95-year-old grandmother, and the reason she's so godly is because of what she does every day. She lets the image of Christ be burned within her through this right here. And, and I just committed my lesson to God. I'm, I just want to be like your son. Lord, teach me to live out your word with people I see every day. That's the best kind of outreach. So you don't have a, a program for me today. You don't have some massive three-step formula. You've got one request. Man, get to know Jesus. Give Him what He deserves, your life. Yeah, give the government their money. That's great. And give the gods what's God's. Because you can live in this world while you belong to that one. Amen? May God burn His image upon our souls. Let us pray, would you?